Good morning, everybody. I appreciate Thomas welcoming everybody. How is everybody? Good to have you. So glad that you are with us here and that you chose to be here uh, at Mission today. We're going to wrap up a series that uh, we have been digging into uh, the goodness of God. Um, one of the things that happens to a lot of us and a lot of people around us is when things aren't good, when things aren't going well, we tend to ask the question, is God good because we we hear those statements that God is good and we sing songs that God is good and people talk about God being good but then when things around us aren't it leads us to have that question about whether or not God is good but one of the things that we can hopefully gain from this series is to walk away with a more definitive uh, belief and understanding that ultimately God is good uh, and the first week, we, we really tried to unpack what is good, and we uh, were reminded that good is a descriptive term that is often used of God throughout the Bible. I mean, whether that's the Old Testament or the New Testament, it doesn't really matter. We hear that time and time again, that God is good. But whether or not we believe God is good, will shape how we live our lives and how we respond to things that happen in life. If we don't believe that God is intrinsically good by nature and by character, then our response to the things that happen, of, happen to us will be vastly different than if we do believe that God is ultimately good. And we went to this verse in Genesis and uh, we looked at God saying, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Then he separated light from darkness. And one of the things that was important for us to understand is that the Hebrew word for good is tov, T-O-V. So when God said, let there be light, and light was there, uh, as a contrast to darkness, he said it was good. And all throughout the Genesis narrative, uh, it, you know, uh, the creation narrative, excuse me, it was good, it was good, it was good, it, and then one time uh, it, it was very good. But one of the things that is important, and this is why I wanted to kind of highlight this again as we get into today's message, is that Tove isn't a description for quality, but rather function. Everything God created was good because it was functioning as it was intended to function. And the reason that's important is that if we're going to understand good, we're not going to find it in light of this world because when Adam and Eve violated what God said, when original sin uh, entered into the human existence in the Garden of Eden, creation stopped functioning as it was intended to function. Everything became broken at that point. The reason there is death, decay, destruction, and disaster is because of that fall. So if, if you're trying to live the good life and you're trying to find a good life and you try to find it in the world, it's not going to be found there because the world isn't functioning as it was intended to function. We are not going to find good apart from 
God the Father. We're not going to find good apart from His Son, Jesus. We're not going to find good any way, in any way, shape, or form apart from Him. And that's important for us to remember. But then last week, we talked about pursued by goodness. We went to Psalm 23, which is a uh, a very familiar psalm, and, and, and the psalmist said that surely goodness and mercy will follow me, meaning that God is always relentlessly pursuing us to bring good into our life, and whether or not we realize that good is do we stop long enough to allow him to bring that good into our lives. And today, what I want to talk about is being restored by goodness being restored by goodness because if if we believe that God is good if if we can if we can land on that rest on that stand on that then then what does it mean to be re- restored by goodness and to kind of set the framework for this I want to I want to share with you the account of Joseph from the Old Testament There's an Old Testament Joseph and a New Testament Joseph the Old Testament Joseph was the youngest of several brothers. And the way Genesis records it is that he was the favored of all the brothers. Now, for some of you, you're like, yep, that's the baby of the family for you. The baby gets whatever he wants, and he can get by with anything. He can do whatever he wants to do. You know, and some of you have these conversations at your family gatherings. You always were dad's favorite. Mama always loved you more, you know, and you'll start sharing stories about how somebody got away with something and somebody else couldn't get away with anything. But it, 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 the Genesis is very clear about how favored Joseph was by his father compared to the rest of the brothers. And not that any of you that, that are a brother or a sister could identify with, they were incredibly jealous. None of you can identify with that, right? I think I hit a nerve. <laughs> so so th- their jealousy ran so deep and so strong that they were going to do something about it. And so what they did is that they took this coat uh, that was of many colors, and it showed favor, it showed wealth, it showed position, it showed privilege. I mean, this was not a cheap, you know, founded at Belk on sale. This was like, you know, there was a lot that went into this coat that, that Joseph's dad gave him, and it was like the ultimate symbol of his favored status. And so what the brothers did is, is they took one of their, their, their animals and they killed it, and they dipped the coat in the blood. In the meantime, they sell this brother into slavery. And they go back to their father and they say, Joseph's dead. That's what they said. They basically said he was killed, he was attacked by, by an animal, and, and we just wanted this to, to, to show as a, a visual proof that, that Joseph is no longer with us. Joseph's dad is heartbroken. In the meantime, Joseph is shipped off to Egypt to, to begin his slavery. He goes into the home of a man named Potiphar, who's now, who now owns him, if you will. But Genesis says that Joseph rose in stature and position because Joseph was a man of integrity. 
He was a man with, with an upright character, ethic, and heart. And so he rose to the highest level that he could within Potiphar's estate. He was incredibly trusted by Potiphar. Potiphar's wife makes sexual advances to Joseph, which he uh, turns down. He does not give in to that. He does not allow her to, to do what she wants to do. So in, in revenge, in retribution for being um, scorned you know, um, for her advances, she goes and tells Potiphar that Joseph tried to rape her. And so Joseph is sent to prison. So he's been sold into slavery. Now he's in prison. And once again, Joseph rises uh, in people's view of him, in his reputation, in the respect that people have from him. And he is given a vision that Egypt is going to have uh, seven years of plenty of good harvest, good stock, good food. Then they're going to enter into an extreme drought. And because God showed favor on Joseph, Joseph gets to share this vision with Pharaoh, uh, the, the leader of all of Egypt, the Egyptian dynasty. And Pharaoh appoints Joseph to be the leader to prepare for the famine, to store up food for the famine, and then to administer food during the famine. So Joseph's gone from being sold into slavery to being put in prison. Now he is the second in command in all of Egypt. I mean, not even a Hallmark movie can write a script this good. They have stored food. The famine begins. And then this is where in the script the music changes. And the brothers arrive. Unbeknownst to the brothers, they arrive in Egypt to find food. And that's exactly what happens. They show up not knowing that the brother they sold into slavery is now the one directly responsible on whether or not they get to go back to their homeland with food so they can survive. And I'm not going to go into the details, but I, I really encourage you to go back and read how Joseph uh, set it in motion for him to reveal himself to his brothers. And so the time has come for him to reveal himself, and he says to them, I am your brother. I'm the one that you sold into slavery. Now here I am. You know, I'm the one that was responsible for you being able to go home with food. But then here's what he says in Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended harm to me, which is exactly true, right? I mean, you don't sell somebody into slavery just thinking things are going to work out okay. But God. That, those are the two most important words in any of our testimonies about the goodness and faithfulness of God. But God. When I was here, but God. When this happened, but God. When I was at my end, but God. And that's exactly where Joseph was. But God intended it how much? All for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. 
Now think about this for a second. I mean, really think about this. If you're Joseph and your brothers show up, knowing that you've been put in prison and you've been sold in slavery, all because they can't stand you being the favored child, what would you do when they walked in the room? Some of you in your conversations with your friends go, I know what I'd do to them. I'd line them up and I'd tell them everything I've been through. And then, I, you know, I mean, we, we talk a big game. But what would you do if it was you? Would you be able to see God in such a bigger picture of what has happened in your life that you could honestly say what you intended for harm, God is using for the good of people because he said, I, so I could save the lives of many people. So I could save the lives of many people. You see, Joseph shows a functional, T-O-V, goodness, and a beneficial response to the harm inflicted upon him. He sees that T-O-V, functional good, only comes when we see God in light of the things that happens in our life. Joseph would have had every reason to be filled with anger and rage and bitterness and, 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 not, and just could not wait for the opportunity to enact revenge on the very ones. But he said, nope. God meant it for good because many people will be saved because of what God has done. Joseph shows the goodness of God and how the goodness of God can be a restoring presence in our life. I'm going to go back to Psalm 23 because I just could not help but come back here in light of what we're talking about today because David, when he talks about God being a, a shepherd... And David, living as a shepherd before he was ever the king, says this in verse 3. He restores my soul. Now, the soul is the core of who we are. It's that part that makes up our identity. It's that part that has a free will. It's that very center of who we are. And everything that happens in life has either a positive or detriment impact on our soul, not just our heart, not just our mind, not just our body, but our soul. And so David says, he restores my soul. And some of you probably wondered what that meant. Like, what, 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 what does that mean in light of God being a shepherd and, and, and God being a restoring presence? Well, you know, for something to be restored, it has to first be broken or harmed or worn or greatly used for, for it to be brought back to a place of being restored. And, and if restored is, is being returned to what it once was, what is it that has been altered? What is it that has been harmed? Um, when, when my wife and I went to look at the house that we live in now, um, when, when we got there and we were about to go in, here's what the realtor said. I just want to prepare you for what you're about to walk into. 
Not necessarily a good statement for a realtor to make, right? But, but you know, don't, don't want you to be surprised. Don't want you to be taken off guard. And, 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 and please understand, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in, intending anything disparaging toward the previous owners. That's not my intent. But whatever had happened in, 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 in that home uh, with, with their pets left an indelible mark. <laughs> and, and the best way I can describe it, it wasn't just the smell of pets. It was like um, pets that didn't quite make it outside. And on top of that, it smelled like a sick pet that couldn't make it outside. And, and so when, when we opened the door, I mean, it was just like... So in here, you'll see the... And over here is the kitchen. I mean, you know, I mean, and it was just thick. I mean, it was, it was just like, oh, my heavens. So we knew that if we were going to make an offer on this house with the potential of buying this house, there was something that had been harmed that was going to have to be restored in order for us to live in this house. Because for something to be restored, it has to first be harmed. There has to be something that has been done. So when the psalm writer says... He restores my soul. Do we really think on a daily basis about the damage that life does to our soul? Because we, we can all think very easily about the things that we remember that we wish we could forget. Those experiences that we've gone through that we don't ever want to go through again. Those, those things that were said to us that, that we can't shake, that we can't get rid of, that they just kind of fester and, and play back on the, on the recorder that's in our mind and we play it back time and time again. Like, do we really think about what life does, not just to our heart, not just to our mind, not just to our body, but to our soul? Because if we're to understand the goodness of God's character, we have to understand how God can work as it relates to the damage that life inflicts on our soul. And here's the first one. One of the great things that God does to restore our soul is that he forgives our sin. I mean, time and time again, we don't think about the power that sin has in our lives. And I'm not just talking about that moment when we say, Lord, come into my life, forgive me of my sin, like that first time we invite Jesus in. Just because we've entered into a relationship with God through Jesus doesn't mean sin isn't still an issue. Because we're broken, fallen people living in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but sin is still an issue. 
And one of the things that we easily forget is that our biggest problems in life is not that you have a dead-end job, is not that you have a crappy boss, is not that the person you're in relationship with doesn't listen or doesn't care, doesn't do what you want them to do. Just because things around you are hard, you know, m fixing those things doesn't fix your biggest problem. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, is sin. I'm glad I can help you feel better about yourself today. But it's true. Because every time we choose ourselves over the, uh, the leadership of God, every time I make a decision for me, regardless of what it does to anybody else, I'm committing a sin. When we ignore God, when we push God out, when we say, God, even though I believe in you and I believe in your son, I'm going to do this my way, which sounds really American and it just sounds like really, you know, you're going to do it your way. It's sin. And every time we go against something that God says that we are to do, every time we go against love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, sin rots our soul. Because we weren't designed to be in rebellion against God. We are designed to be in relationship with God. And the, and, and the closer we walk with God, the healthier, the stronger, the more at ease, the more at rest our soul is. And so when we're willing to come to God and say, look, I'm, I messed up. I did things my way instead of your way. God, I violated something that, that, that you've commanded. I've gone against something that you've said. One of the things that the psalmist says in 103.12 is that as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for your mercy and grace. Because remember, east never becomes west. East will never meet west. You can go east and you will always go east. But you know if you go north, eventually you go south? And then you go north again? If you were to go to the North Pole and go over the top, you're going to be going south. But you're, if you go to the right, you're always going east. If you go left, you're always going west. The east and the west never meet. So when God says he has, he has removed our sin and our transgressions, you may remember it. God doesn't. Other people may bring it up. God doesn't. The reason your sins and your failures and your mistakes continue to play in your mind is because you haven't forgiven yourself. So God has moved, removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. There is nothing that brings a soul more life than repentance from sin and following God. Nothing. Nothing. And, and, and we'll buy into the lie that, that life is about, you know, pleasure and about fun and about experiences and doing this and doing that. And those things are certainly a part of life, but that's not where we feel truly alive. We do not feel alive if we are disconnected from God. There's a reason why it said, you know, that I think it was Pascal that said there's a God-shaped void in all of our lives only to be filled by God. And until God fills that void, nothing else will fill it. Nothing else will satisfy it. And when we allow God into our lives, he forgives our sin and it is gone. It is gone. It is gone.
The second thing that God does to restore our soul is that he releases us from our guilt. It's one thing to say, Jesus, I, I, I confess this sin. I'm, I'm going to repent from this sin. I'm not, I'm not going to allow this in my life anymore. But it's another thing to say, I'm letting go of the guilt of it. Because a lot of times, like, we'll say, God's forgiven me, but I haven't forgotten I carry the regret, I carry that, that I wish I hadn't have done that, and the things that I did to other people, or the things that I did to myself, or the damage that I did to other people, or the relationships that I broke apart, or, you know, the, all of those things that I've done. If we carry a certain amount of guilt, we will not be fully restored by God, because not only does God forgive us of our sin, but He's willing and ready to remove the guilt of what has happened. And one of the reasons that we have a hard time letting go of guilt is there's always somebody around who doesn't want you to forget about what you've done. There's always somebody to remind you of what you've done. Oh yeah, I remember how you used to be. Oh yeah, you remember that time? You know, and, and, and there's always people that are willing to play those things back in front of us. And so we have a hard time letting go of guilt. But listen to what Paul says in Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those that belong to Christ Jesus. Guilt is a self-condemnation. It is a self-judgment. It, it is a self-inflicted um, paralyzer of all that God wants to do in our life. And, and so Paul says, look, there's no condemnation. Not only is your sin forgiven, your guilt is taken care of. And a lot of times we, we may acknowledge or accept the fact that God has forgiven, but we haven't let go of guilt. And it's just as destructive to our soul. Because if we live in guilt, we don't think there's anything good that God can do in our life going forward. We don't think there's any way that God can use us in, 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 in substantial ways uh, to make his name known in the lives of other people. We, if we live in guilt, we're saying that our past dictates our present and our future. And God said that's not to be the case. I dictate your future. I dictate your future, not your past, not your failures, not your sin. The third thing that God does to restore our soul is that he heals our hurts. He heals our hurts. Every single one of us could sit down and give a list of ways that we have been hurt in life. And, and look, sometimes those hurts don't always uh, mean that somebody did something to us. A dream didn't get realized. A goal didn't get accomplished. We get passed over for something. We didn't get picked for the team. We got let go. You know, whatever it is, we are going to accumulate a certain number of hurts in our lives. The longer we live, the more likelihood we're going to be hurt. If you're, if you're at a certain age and you've got a way more of your life in front of you than in the rearview mirror, there is going to be hurt that's going to happen in your life. Sorry to disappoint, but not everything's going to be rainbows and butterflies or medium steaks and cheesecake. I don't know if that works, but... I like it. <laughs> you know, not everything's going to go the way that you intend for it to go, the way that you want it to go. There's going to be hurt. And when we carry those hurts, 
for an extended period of time, it does damage to our soul. It, it, it hurts our ability to love, to trust, to relate, to, to, to allow people into our lives, to allow people into our circles. It's almost like the older we get, the, the more jaded and calloused that we get because it's like it's a defense mechanism to try to, try to keep us from being hurt again. But listen to what David says in Psalm 30. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Most of the people that you would ever ask, and if they were to be honest, do you want to continue to hurt? Who would say yes to that? Who would say yes to go, yeah, I just would, would really like to have this pain and this disappointment and this hurt for the rest of my life. Nobody would, would really answer it that way. God says you hear the desire of the afflicted. You strengthen their heart. Where hurts have a tendency to weaken our heart, the, the, the presence of God, the restoration uh, that God brings into our heart is that he will strengthen our heart, that we're willing to continue to push forward with life. We're not going to retreat. We're going to continue to pursue community, pursue relationships, pursue love, pursue trust, pursue opportunities to be in community with each other. And he says, you will incline your ear. David had full confidence that everything that he could take to the Lord in spite of his brokenness and his hurt, that God would hear and that God would strengthen. The fourth way that God restores our soul is that he soothes our grief. Now, I want to just establish this. Grief is not just something we experience when we lose to death someone that we love and care about. Any loss that, 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 that brings about a change in our life is, is a loss that can be grieved and needs to be grieved. Because you may not have lost someone really close to you or significant, but you may have lost something that has altered your life, your health, can bring about a life-altering event. You know, getting, getting let go from a, from a job at a, at a particular period of life can bring a life alter because maybe you're not going to be able to accomplish those retirement dreams. Maybe you've got to adjust and adapt and do things differently, and, and there's a loss there. But regardless of the nature of the loss, loss will, will bring about an, an, a woundedness to our heart and our soul. Listen to what Psalm 34 says. The Lord is what? Close to the brokenhearted. He's close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Talk to people that have been through grief and they will tell you there is nothing that has crushed them like loss. Nothing has crushed them like loss. And, and the psalmist says that, that those are the ones the Lord is closest to. Those, those are the ones that God is right there with. He is close to the brokenhearted. There is no greater soil for the potential of God to do His restorative work than when we take our losses to him. Number five, 
The fifth way that God restores our soul is that he helps us forgive. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that when a certain theme or a certain idea keeps coming up in a, in a relatively small window of time, there is, there is something the Lord is trying to say, you know, in, in, into our church family. And, and it seems that, that this, this, this right here about forgiving others has something that's been, been coming up multiple times over the last few months. And, and, and it very well could be that, that some of you in the room this morning or those of you that are going to listen to this online, like there is, there is somebody that, that you, you haven't forgiven. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this, and I've seen this time and time again. The fastest path to a hard and bitter heart is unforgiveness. There is no quicker path. I have sat in the room with people in their 70s and 80s who have held on to every single grudge that they could ever hold on to, and they are miserable to be around. There is nothing good that comes out of their mouth. There's nothing redeeming that comes out of their mouth. There's nothing hopeful that comes out of their mouth. And even though they may profess to be a believer in Jesus, they've not allowed God to work on their hard heart. And unforgiveness will lead us down a path that a jackhammer cannot get through our heart, that it would become so hard. I would never minimize the hurt and the pain that humans can inflict on each other. We are masterful at tearing each other apart, are we not? But when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, forgiveness is not optional. Listen to what Paul says to the Colossian church. Make allowance for each other's Faults. Nobody in this room is perfect. Sorry to burst your bubble. We've all got, got faults. We've all got them. And forgive anyone who offends you. Some of the ones that offend you. A few of those that offend you. Anyone. Remember, the Lord forgave you so you must forgive others. Sometimes our internal conversations with God would be like this. Oh, man. Come on, God. Really? You know, because, because we, we carry those, 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 um, those hurts from other people, like when people have wronged us and betrayed us and said things about us and said things to us, I mean, we carry those things and we, sometimes we take them to heart. Paul says the Lord forgave you, you've got to forgive. And boy, that's hard. But it's not optional. Forgiveness isn't about the other person. 
It's about you and your relationship with God. It is a willingness to say, God, I don't want to carry this anymore. I'm going to give it back to you. What, what happened was wrong and what happened was hurtful and what I've carried with me a long time. But God, I don't want to carry it anymore because I want to experience the a restoration of my soul because I'm tired of dwelling on it. I'm tired of thinking about it. I'm tired of living with it. I'm tired of thinking about revenge. I'm tired of wanting that person, you know, to be embarrassed or to fail or to fall on their face. And I, and I want to be the one with a front row seat when it happens. I'm tired of carrying that, God. I can't carry it anymore. That's where forgiveness becomes about you and your relationship with God. Who do you need to forgive? Because if you don't, God can't do his work of restoration inside of your soul. You see, one of the things that happens is that we struggle against God especially as it relates to our soul, the, the hurts of our soul, the struggles of our soul. And, and what happens is that we block God from being a restoring God. It's an interesting study when you know a little bit more about the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. Sheep aren't the most coordinated animal. And their legs, in spite of their size, are not real stable and not real strong. And one of the things that will happen is that on occasion, you know, whether the wool gets too thick or, or a female is, is pregnant, they, they can easily fall over and end up on their back. And when they do, they can't get themselves turned over and upright again. All they can do is just lay there and kick. Lay there and kick. Lay there and kick. And if the sheep do not have a shepherd who is attentive and caring to the flock, that sheep will die on its back. And what you and I do when our souls get wounded is we lay on our back and we kick at everything around us. We kick at other people. We kick at those that we think are responsible for the offenses. And we kick at those that are trying to be friendly and helpful. We kick at those who are trying to, be, bring, to, to bring healing and help. And we even kick back at our good shepherd, our heavenly father. And what David says, and when he says he rest restores our soul, is that when we're on our back and kicking, is that he picks us up and he puts us on our feet again. And only he can do it. Only he can do it. Only he can do it. And sometimes it's hard, and it takes time. When we signed the papers and we moved into that house, when we got occupancy, we opened the door and we opened every window in the house. And the carpet, gone. The padding, gone. And literally for the next uh, four or five days, everywhere that we could see spotting in the subfloor, we treated it 
to where that smell would remove. And, and, and we were able to bring restoration to something that had been harmed. Too many times we want God to just snap a finger and we're instantly whole, instantly well, instantly better. But God doesn't always work like that. The work of restoration takes time. If you have to forgive someone, you're going to have to lay that down today and later today and tonight and tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon and tomorrow evening. If you've confessed sin and you're, and, and, and you're tempted to go back into that sin, you're, you're, you're going to have to repent tomorrow and, and tomorrow afternoon and tomorrow night and the next morning and the next day after that. God, but over time, the restoration work of God begins to take shape. Your heart gets softer. Your soul gets stronger. Your soul starts to feel more alive. Your soul begins to be more at rest and not conflicted and not angry and not resentful and not resisting the restoration work of God. And here's what makes this beautiful. Isaiah 66. Isaiah is one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. God is about to bring down a hard and swift judgment on the people of Israel because they have ignored him, they've built idols, their hearts have been far from him, and God has given them every warning, and he says, I'm going to have to bring judgment upon you. And he says this through the prophet Isaiah. In the same way, I will not cause pain without allowing something new to be born. Your pain is not in vain. Your brokenness has an end result. Joseph is a great roadmap to how to deal with life's hurts and have God restore our soul in such a way that we can look out at the landscape around us and go, this is what God did so that lives will be saved. And I promise you this, if you allow God to restore your soul, he will put you in places to tell the story of that great restoration work so that you can have a front row seat in the lives of others being saved in the name of Jesus. Your pain is not in vain. God brings something new. Now, birth can take a while. It can take a while for something to be fully realized for all that it is. But that's what God promises. Because He is good. And a God who is good restores your soul in good ways. As we say so many times, if you will let God in and let him work, you will see the goodness of the good shepherd. Let's pray. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to begin a relationship with the good shepherd, Jesus.
Maybe you've been running uh, because life just hasn't gone well. It hasn't gone the way you've wanted it to. And you've been mad at God, angry with God. You've lashed out at God. And maybe you found yourself here today and you're saying, wow, God really is good. God loves me. God wants good for me. And that starts by a relationship with Christ. But you have to invite him in. He never goes into a place he's not invited. And so I want to lead you in a prayer this morning. If you want to ask Jesus into your life, would you pray this prayer in your mind, in your heart? God will hear your prayer and he will answer your prayer. So pray with me, dear Jesus. Thank you that you are the good shepherd. Thank you that you want and desire good for my life. I want to taste and experience that goodness. So Jesus, I ask you to come in. I'm inviting you into my life. I thank you for coming to this earth. I thank you for dying on the cross. I thank you for forgiving me of my sin. I thank you for rising again on the third day. I believe you are my Savior. I am yours. And Jesus, I will follow you wherever you lead from this day forward. In Jesus' name. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, there's a couple of ways we respond at mission to that invitation. One is the connection card that Pastor Thomas mentioned earlier. You can fill that out and mark that you prayed to receive Christ. Drop that in the offering boxes. Or you can speak to me personally before you leave. Don't leave without sharing that decision with someone. And before I close, those of you that are believers, where is God tugging at you this morning to let him in and restore your soul? Sin, guilt, hurt, grief, forgiveness, what is it? Because this, this, this is where obedience can be really hard, but really worth the hardship. Because if you really believe that God is good and you really believe that he wants good for you, will you allow him into those places and allow his good work of restoration to begin? Father, I pray for each one in this room that's struggling right now with a wounded soul. God, I pray that your spirit is just speaking words of hopeful encouragement. Yes, conviction, but hopeful encouragement. God, that they would be willing to allow you to work, to bring the work of restoration so that they can live as you've designed them to live, fully alive in you, fully alive, living in the purpose that you have for them. Jesus, thank you that you're that good. That it doesn't matter what happens to any of us, your desire, your end goal is goodness.
Lord, thank you for that good work. And I pray that there are those in this room that would have a great story to tell in the days ahead of your great work of restoration. Father, that's who you are. That's how you operate. Thanks be to God for that amazing goodness. May so many around us taste it as well. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's people said, amen.